0: Hello. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu/institute. Uh, good evening, my name is Maddie Silverstein, I'm an Associate Professor of Philosophy here at NYU Abu Dhabi, and on behalf of the Institute, I'd like to welcome you all to tonight's talk by Professors Jennifer Morton and Sarah Paul. Uh, I'll introduce them both in a moment, but first I just want to thank the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute for. For sponsoring the workshop uh, that this is the public component of, it's the Normativity and Reasoning Workshop. This is actually the tenth iteration, the tenth version of the workshop, uh, and we are just grateful to the continuing for the gr- continuing support of the institute. Okay, so let me introduce our two speakers who are going to talk to us about True Grit. Uh, so Jennifer Morton is currently uh, a professor at University of Pennsylvania. She got her BA at Princeton and then did her PhD at Stanford, where she met Professor Paul, Um, and uh, has taught, among other places, at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill before moving to Penn. Uh, Professor Paul did her undergraduate degree at Carleton College in the United States and got her PhD at Stanford, where she met Professor Morton. (laughs) Uh, And then she taught for a number of years at the University of Wisconsin before she displayed the great wisdom uh, to join us here at NYU Abu Dhabi, where uh, she is currently at home. Uh, and so uh, I could give you a long list of the great papers and books that they have published both together and individually but I'll just mention one because it's sort of the source for at least some of the ideas that we'll be hearing about tonight their paper grit was published in the journal ethics uh, three or four years ago and was voted in the philosophers annual as one of the ten best philosophy papers that was published during 2019 Uh, and I think that assessment was fully warranted Uh, and so please Please join me in welcoming Professors Morton and Paul as they talk to us about True Grit, Striving in the Face of Adversity.
1: Awesome. Okay, I would like to start off by thanking Maddie and NYU Abu Dhabi Institute for sponsoring this event and this conference and having us here. It really is a pleasure to be here. Um, And it's a pleasure to share this work with you. Sarah and I have been thinking about this for a long time and we're finally in the process of putting a book together, which we hope will be done soon and out next year. Um, So it's really exciting to share this uh, with you and we look forward to hearing um, uh, what you think. Um, So the idea that we're interested in is striving. Um, And agents who strive are agents who are pursuing goals that are a little bit out of their reach, perhaps, or like with, you know, far reach. They're extending their reach towards a goal that's ambitious or difficult. Um, So it would be odd for me to say that I'm striving to have a drink of water, unless there was some difficulty with trying to do that. Ordinary actions, that kind of things you do. You go to the grocery store, store you get to work, those don't count as striving. Striving is characterized by the fact that the goal you're pursuing presents setbacks and challenges. Okay, so to get you in the mood for thinking about striving, we're going to start with a few examples that we think of us as strivers and examples of striving. Uh, so at the top here, you have Diana Nyad, and some of you might have seen that movie Nyad, with, uh, you know, that was just in the Oscar buzz. Um, but what is um, really interesting about Diana Nyad is that she uh, crossed, um, uh, she swam between Cuba and Florida without using a shark cage, um, and a really grueling open swim, and she did this at the age of 64. Um, Nyad had previously tried when she was in her 20s um, to, to do this and had failed. Um, and um, in her 60s, she had the idea that she was gonna try again, and that this time she was really gonna do it, as you might imagine. Lots of people were skeptical that this was something that uh, she could do, but she she did do it. And and so that is an example of a striving agent we'll refer to. Um, Another one is Sonia Sotomayor. Uh, Sonia Sotomayor is the first Latina on the Supreme Court. Um, And that by itself is remarkable. But what's remarkable about Sotomayor in particular is that she had very humble beginnings. Um, She's the daughter of Puerto Rican immigrants and grew up in the Bronx. Her dad died. Her, her mom raised her and Sotomayor became the first person in her family to attend college uh, Princeton um, she then went on to Yale law and is now in the Supreme Court a, a pretty stunning feat and um, Definitely, Con Horses Driver. Um, another example that we're going to talk about is Tara Westover. Some of you might have read her best selling book, Educated. Uh, Westover grew up in a fundamentalist Mormon household in Idaho. Um, her family didn't believe in public education, they really didn't believe in actually interacting with people in the public. They, they stayed in their family. Um, and Westover, really of her own accord, starts trying to figure out how to get an education outside um, of her family. She goes to BU, um, becomes the first person in her family to go to college. Um, and then she goes to Oxford and to Harvard and writes this best-selling book. Um, and and in the process, and one of the things that we will refer to is, she ends up distancing herself from her family and um, pays pretty high cost for her achievement. Okay, one more example that we're going to bring is not of a person, but of a kind of relationship that you might think of as a, as an example of striving in the social world, which is that um, um, many people, ourselves included, uh, strive to have uh, happy marriages, successful marriages, um, but we're well aware of the evidence that a lot of people get divorced and that uh, having a happy, successful marriage isn't guaranteed um, by any means. And so striving to have a good marriage is, one a, is, is an example of a social case of striving that we might think about. Okay. Um, so, one of the interesting things about striving is that the striving agent often will encounter these setbacks and challenges. So, um, Diana Nyad, the first time she tries to, to, to do the swim, fails, right, and, and that might be the kind of thing that might raise an important question. Should I persevere? Should I keep trying to do this thing, right? So a striving agent in the process of striving will often encounter setbacks and challenges. And what happens when you encounter those setbacks and challenges is that you ask yourself the question, should I keep going? Is it worth it to keep going? Now, what kind of answer that you might have to this question, like should I persevere, is to think that what you need is a kind of grit or resilience to keep going, right? And um, we often appeal to this notion kind of in public discourse. We think that grit and perseverance is a good thing. We encourage our children, I see some children in the audience, to persevere when they encounter uh, setbacks and challenges. So how should we think about perseverance? How should we think about the kind of strength of will that the striving agent requires? There is a kind of model out there in psychology and philosophy and in public discourse about the will that has this picture of strength of will that's very influenced by thinking about temptation. So here, think of the dieter who's looking at a piece of delicious chocolate cake, and they think, "Oh, I really want to lose weight, but that chocolate cake looks delicious. Or the drinker who's trying to quit drinking, but somebody offers them a beer. Or the smoker um, who who really thinks, this time I'm going to quit. Now, something that's common to those cases is that the agent is someone who's confronted with temptation. And what strength of will involves is resisting temptation. And there are even some pictures in psychology that suggest um, the resisting temptation is kind of like a, a kind of muscle that we exercise, right? We exercise the strength in resisting temptation. And so that might seem like an appealing picture in thinking about what is required to keep striving and persevering in these difficult, in cases of uh, trying to achieve these difficult goals. So we think, um, you know, what Sonia Sotomayor needed or Diana Nayad, what they succeeded at was this kind of strength of will, making it through temptation. But we think that that's not the right model um, for thinking about striving agency. And so what we're going to do in this talk, well, actually what Sarah's going to do shortly, is, um, is going to give you a sense of the kind of challenges and setbacks that we think are characteristics of striving agency, and why this picture, this kind of strength of will picture, is not the right way to think about perseverance when you think about these, the sort of challenges and setbacks that striving
2: agents face.
1: And so with that, I will
2: hand it over. Great let's think through some of those challenges that characterize the domain of striving agency. As Jen emphasized, the central question that faces the striving agent is, should I persevere? Should I keep going? Or should I give up and potentially pursue something else? Okay. And so we wanna ask, why is it that people sometimes make a mistake in answering this question? Why is it that people might give up too soon or quit too late? And we think, as Jen said, that this isn't always best explained by the idea that the quitters give in to temptation and the people who succeed somehow have a strong will muscle that helps them overcome temptation. So the first challenge we'll refer to as the road not taken. And this is simply the idea that when you're pursuing a difficult goal, You generally are deciding, among various different options, what to go in for um, or who to go in for in the case of marriage. And often there are good alternatives available to you. Not always, but in many cases there are other things you could be doing. So instead of trying to swim 100 miles between Cuba and Florida, uh, there are other good things that Diana Nyad could have been pursuing. Um, Or we can imagine Tara, who made the decision to leave her Mormon community and pursue higher education far away, um, really agonized about the decision about whether to stay or whether to go. And so uh, when there is this road not taken and when you encounter setbacks and difficulties in the thing that you're trying to do right, the appeal of the alternatives can be heightened for you and your mind can focus on the other things that you could be doing instead. So we might imagine Tara uh, encountering setbacks when she um, gets to college. She's working basically a full-time job to support herself because she has no support from her family. She uh, is in an organized educational institution for the first time because she was homeschooled previously, and maybe it's not going well, she's exhausted, she's not doing well in her classes, and she might think, I really should have stayed home, it would have been safe and comfortable there. Right? And so your mind can focus on the value of the alternatives in a way that might lead you to decide not to persevere. Secondly, um, we might focus not on the value of the alternatives relative to what we're trying to do, but on the feasibility of the pursuit. So often when we adopt these goals, part of what's, kind of characteristic of them, is that we're very uncertain, especially at the beginning, about whether we'll be able to do the thing. We think, it's possible, I might be able to swim 100 miles or become you know, a high-powered lawyer in New York, as Sonia Sotomayor did, but you don't know whether you have the ability and whether you'll be given the opportunity to succeed. And so you set out to do it with some sense that it, uh, it might be possible, but then when you encounter setbacks, you uh, get bad grades in your first semester in college, or you know you have a terrible a series of fights with your partner, all right, these things are not only demoralizing and difficult to get through emotionally, but you might also see them as evidence that this is not gonna work out. No matter how hard I try, no matter how, um, how long I persevere, I cannot make this relationship work, or college is not for me, or um, I won't be able to swim 100 miles at the age of 64. And so the second problem is essentially that these setbacks um, not only turn your mind to the value of the alternatives, but partly by way of making you think, this isn't going to work and so I need to, uh, I need to quit and switch to something else. The third threat that we want to highlight is related to the second in the sense that it involves a certain kind of evidence that you may have or not have. Um, But the evidence in question here is not about yourself and your own individual abilities because you might not have very much evidence about that, especially at the outset. You just don't know if you can do it. Um, But one way you might try to get a sense of whether it even makes sense to, say, strive for uh, a seat on the US Supreme Court or um, leave your community and pursue some, uh, some other career, you might look around for examples of other people in your community, perhaps, who have tried to do similar things and succeeded. Or you might look for narratives out there that tell you this is the kind of thing that you can do and it can give you some confidence that this, is, this makes sense to go in for, right? But uh, if you are a member of let's say, a marginalized or underprivileged group, uh, where there have been very few people who are relevantly similar to you with respect to your social identity, who have done the thing that you're striving to do. So, say, Sonia looks around. There are very few Latinas uh, who are in these high-powered legal positions. Um, Diana, Probably has no examples of a woman in her 60s swimming this far. And so it kind of looks like you might lack a certain kind of evidence that you would need to even get going. And that's what we're going to call a pessimism trap. That it looks really unreasonable for you to even strive for these difficult goals because you don't have examples of people like you who have done it before. And yet, that can be very regrettable if nobody uh, you know, in this kind of group ever tries to do this kind of thing, then we'll never have any such evidence. Okay, And so that's a pessimism trap. All three of the threats I just mentioned are um, threats to our ability to persevere and things that might incline us to give up or quit. Um, so you might take away the impression that the real problem is just how do you get yourself to get going and keep going. but The other side of the coin is that we're not just vulnerable to giving up prematurely. We're actually, in many contexts, vulnerable to giving up way too late. And this is a phenomenon that we'll call commitment escalation or over-efforting. Basically, in a lot of contexts, people refuse to pay attention to the very clear evidence that the thing they're trying to do isn't working, and just double down and throw good money after bad, or otherwise just invest more and more in a failing endeavor, and become even more committed to it precisely in response to the evidence that it's not going well. Um, And here the classic examples are often uh, with respect to governments and businesses. So we think of governments getting involved in military actions and then just can't seem to um, get out of them, or businesses that launch a failing product and can't give up on them. But we can also think about personal relationships. Maybe we all know people who uh, just stick it out way too long in a relationship that isn't working. Um, or you buy a house and you're intending to renovate it and you just it becomes a money pit and you can't let go. And so the basic point is the threat here to a striving agent is not only that you, for various reasons, might give up too soon, but by undertaking a difficult goal and becoming committed to it, you also become vulnerable to becoming entrapped in a kind of escalating uh, commitment. So these are four reasons why we might answer the question of whether to persevere uh, in various ways. What's notable about them is that these are all good reasons to think about. So you should be thinking about the value of what you're trying to do relevant to the alternatives. You should be thinking about the feasibility and whether you're likely to succeed if you continue to try. Um, And you should be looking for evidence that will help you make a good choice. Uh, So it's not that people here are paying attention to irrational things, but we think there. Systematic reasons why, um, because of human psychology and uh, sort of our emotional proclivities, we might be overly sensitive to these considerations or um, too insensitive to them and make the wrong choice for that reason. And so, the thing we really want to highlight is that none of these threats seems like um, an instance of giving in to the temptation to do something easy or pleasant instead of swimming 100 miles or instead leaving your home and going to to college. Uh, There's something else going on here. And if we want to characterize strength of will in this context, we're going to need a much more nuanced picture. Okay, so now that we've characterized the domain of striving agency a little bit more, we're in a good position to assess a really popular bit of advice that we encounter, both in sort of general um, cultural context, but also in more scholarly academic work, which is what you should do if you want to succeed at a difficult goal, if you want to be like Sonia and Diana and whatnot, you should be optimistic. You should believe in yourself. You should cultivate a positive mindset and just think, I will triumph even if many other people haven't. Before, even if everybody else gets divorced, it's not going to be me, right? Um, you should believe that the future will work out for you. The mic is coming yeah,
0: in. The mic is
2: oh, okay. Uh, Sorry. The mic. Yeah. Is this is okay. Hello. Mm-hmm. Is that mm. better? Okay. Good. Um, and so the idea is that if you're optimistic, then you will be less vulnerable to some of these threats, because the evidence that you're getting when you try to do something difficult and the first four attempts to swim from Cuba to Florida don't work out, or your your relationship is going through a rocky patch, um, that evidence is not going to undermine your confidence. It's not going to incline you to give up, because after all, you think eventually it will work out. And so this is a way of trying to overcome some of these threats. And we see this, I think, in self-help literature, but also in um, positive psychology. For example, Martin Seligman at Penn has argued that optimism, an optimistic mindset, has all kinds of benefits. And it will help you live longer and generally thrive. Okay. Um, So there's a lot to be said for this idea. We don't want to reject it out of hand. Um, Certainly, if you are pessimistic and you think you will fail, that will generally be self-fulfilling. You probably will fail, and you probably will give up before you succeed if you're pessimistic. And we agree that um, being sort of less vulnerable to the throes of despair and the influence of negative evidence from moment to moment is really valuable. Um, But the thing we want to highlight here is that if you think of optimism as simply involving a positive belief that everything is going to work out well, somehow or other. It's all gonna turn out fine. Um, And if you think of that kind of belief as sustained by ignoring the evidence to the contrary, just kind of putting on the, you know, the headphones, putting on the blinders, and just forging ahead and refusing to even pay any attention to the evidence that it might not be working, that can be very costly, right? That can open you up to essentially persevering way too long, paying huge opportunity costs, uh, failing at the thing you were trying to do, and sort of ending up in a relatively catastrophic position. Okay, so optimism is very risky. It protects you potentially from, um, it protects you from premature despair, and that's what's good about it. But it opens you up to very expensive failure if you think about it as a matter of ignoring all the evidence to the contrary. So what we want to propose is a way of thinking about a kind of reasonable optimism that. Steers between these two dangers of avoiding premature despair, but also avoiding expensive failure. Right? And that isn't sustained by ignoring the evidence, but rather is compatible with um, staring the evidence in the face and taking it into account. Okay, and so this is a conception of strength of will as in part involving what we'll call epistemic resilience. That's a little bit jargony, but I'll try to explain what we mean by that. Okay, so to do that, I need to draw a distinction between having a bunch of evidence or a bunch of data or information and making up your mind about what to believe in light of that evidence, okay? Um, And we wanna say that these, Are not sort of automatic, they're not the same thing. So, you know, um, think about a science lab where part of what you do is you gather a bunch of data and you, you know, as your experiments are run, you get the results and you're looking at the data and you're trying to understand what it means and, you know, you're really scrutinizing it, but maybe you haven't yet. Um, made up, well, lab doesn't have a mind, but maybe you haven't yet concluded anything from the data because you're still waiting to get a sufficient amount of evidence before you consider it to be conclusive and you're ready to draw the implications of the data. And so we think that's Um, Something that goes on all the time, even outside of that scientific context. Uh, You can have a bunch of information and think about what it means, what kind of significance it has as evidence, and not yet be ready to change your mind in light of it or draw any kind of conclusion. And so, if that's right, then one way to think about preserving a kind of optimism in the face of setbacks and obstacles and rejections and injuries and all the negative things that can happen when you're striving in the face of adversity. We can think of it as a kind of resilience where you're getting the evidence and you're seeing it as evidence and you're thinking about its significance, but you're slower to change your mind in light of that evidence. You're slower to lose confidence and despair about your prospects compared to perhaps somebody else who's not you, who's not trying to do the difficult thing, who might be ready to make up their mind more quickly right so we can think of the striving agent who's exhibiting a kind of reasonable optimism as thinking about the evidence not ignoring it but just being much slower and much more resilient in the face of the evidence. And therefore, um, they're going to be able to hang on to their initial relatively optimistic assessment that I can do this maybe, I, I'm hopeful, I can, I can pull this off. Um, and they're not going to let the setbacks immediately send them into the depths of despair. But they are paying attention and so they are um, eventually in a position to despair and to give up if that's what the evidence calls for. Now, here's a question: Is that kind of resilience in the face of evidence uh, necessarily irrational? Like do we have to think of the resilient agent as sort of being? irrationally slow to to update in light of the evidence and to change their mind and think, ah, this is never going to work out? Uh, Does it have to involve a kind of unreasonableness? We want to say that the answer is no, that it can be perfectly reasonable to be slower and more um, resistant to changing your mind in light of the negative evidence than other people might be, Um, and that's because The evidence in question might not sort of determine exactly how everybody should think about the question of whether this is going to work out. This is what we'll call the underdetermination of evidence. The basic idea here is that sometimes the evidence you have about a question is perfectly clear and indisputable and decisive. Like if the question is, are you here right now in a big auditorium listening to a talk, um, absent some weird skeptical hypothesis in a philosophy class, Yes, you are. All the evidence you have uh, very clearly suggests that you are, and there's no room for disagreement about that. But in a lot of other cases, the evidence might not be so conclusive such that there is room for reasonable people to disagree about what you should believe in light of it. You can think about uh, maybe a jury in in a criminal case who's heard all the evidence for and against, from the prosecution and the defense, and now they're trying to adjudicate you know, what verdict to come to in light of that evidence. And it might be that people on that jury disagree about what to conclude from the evidence, and they're all reasonable in their differing conclusions because the evidence permits of different interpretations, or some people think it's sufficient to go ahead and say guilty, but the other people think it's not yet sufficient to draw that conclusion. Or, you know, look at the picture on the slide. We have, let's say, one person who's ahead in the race and the others are behind, and that's some evidence. You might think that the person in front is going to win the race, but someone else might look at that and say, well... You know, I need more evidence to think that the person in front will win because maybe they burn themselves out and they're going to, uh, they're going to, you know, hit the wall. And so, the basic idea here is that, um, especially in striving contexts where we're thinking about what will happen in the future, it's notoriously difficult to predict that, and where the evidence is often sort of, it's not clear which way it points. We think there's gonna be room for reasonable disagreement and thus that the striving agent who ends up being relatively optimistic in the face of the evidence because they kind of think, well, I'm just on the end of the spectrum that um, just thinks we need more evidence before we draw any kind of conclusion here. I still think, you know, that I can make it. Maybe other people don't think so, but, um, and they can be perfectly reasonable to think that. And so, this is a way of preserving optimism without being irrational necessarily um, and without ignoring the evidence. Okay, now I'm going to turn it back over to Ed. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um,
1: do I need, I need this? Yeah. Okay, great. Um, so, one, one point we want to make here, and it might be helpful to return to thinking about that temptation paradigm, right? To think about the difference between that view and our view, is that if you think of strength of will as resisting the lure of temptation, right? The, the dieter in front of the cake, there's a way of thinking about agency in which strength of agency is just about sort of like making it through. Right, about getting the goal. But what emerges from thinking about in, in thinking about striving agency in our picture is that striving is also about inquiry, about asking yourself questions, about being sensitive to evidence. So part of what we want to stress is that striving agency requires us to be paying attention to the evidence to be having a a theory, um, a picture of how we're going to achieve our goal and adjusting on the basis of the evidence. However, as Sarah argued, and and we have argued in published work, um, if you're too quick to adjust to the evidence, right? if you're the kind of agent where any little setback or failure um, throws you off course, if you immediately quit, then you're going to end up uh, in the premature the despair um, side of the equation, and that is something that you want to avoid. However, if you ignore the evidence, right? If you just think, oh, "I just got to muscle through this setback or this challenge," then what you're end up, going to end up on is the costly failure, right? You're going to be the person who's like, um, just keeps going no matter what, and so. Um, what we want to argue is that being attentive to evidence, um, inquiring and asking yourself, OK, is, is, am I going to succeed, is an important part of being a striving agent. And it is a way of being a successful striving agent um, and not one that despairs. OK. Now here we're going to introduce another notion um, that we call this idea of interpretive frameworks Um, and you might think, okay, so you're giving me this picture in which I have some idea of um, how I'm going to achieve this goal, whether it's swimming 100 miles or uh, becoming a successful lawyer, etc, etc. And I might have some view of the evidence that's more optimistic or more pessimistic, um, or there are other kinds of interpretations you might give of the evidence. And this might be something that you uh, just have as a matter of default. This is the way that you think about the world. So I will share that I tend to be a very pessimistic person. (laughs) So I am the kind of person where any little setback or challenge, I'm like, oh, this is not going to work, right? I, 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 I tend to be that way. So my kind of default interpretive framework for the evidence is to be a little bit too negative. But if you think of striving agency just from this individual perspective, it might seem like, oh, so how are you going to get yourself to be more optimistic, right? It might seem like I'm, I'm kind of doomed. Um, Thankfully, we have other people. <laughs> and so you see this in the picture. We can talk to others, and we can get at others' perspectives. So if you um, take on board the picture that we're putting forward, there's this important role that mentors, teachers, friends, parents, family can play in helping us to think about the evidence in front of us. right? And so I am. Um, um, made the wise decision to marry an optimist. (laughs) Uh, And that's really helpful to me because as I look at evidence and I'll like, you know, I'm trying really hard to get a journal published and I'll get a rejection. I'm like, oh, this is paper. is never gonna get published. I should just quit philosophy my wonderful spouse, (laughs) um, is someone who will point out, oh, there's all this other evidence you seem to be ignoring, right? They'll just, he'll say, like, this bit of evidence, I know you know it's there, but you're not really paying enough attention to it. He'll help me give a different interpretation or like see a different interpretation of the evidence than I had. Um, So there is an important role here for interpretation to play and for other people to play in helping us think about the evidence in front of us. And this, um, on our picture, shows us that Striving is not just about you as an individual, usually, you know, pursuing the goal and thinking, will I succeed? Um, there is an important social dimension and an important dimension that um, people in your community, friends, family, and so on, can play in helping us calibrate. And this works in both ways. So it can work with a, with a pessimist who needs to be a little bit more optimistic. But as some of you might know in the audience who have been teachers or mentors. It can also be the kind of thing that you do in um, making someone that's being overly optimistic a little bit more realistic, right? So I imagine some of us have played that role. Uh, you, you know uh, have a student, and they think, ah, this paper is amazing. Like, I just wrote an amazing paper. And you're like, well, OK, let's think through this a little bit. And like you might point to some places in which the paper could have been improved or some things that they might do. so. You you can calibrate your sense um, of how things are going, of how well you're doing, um, by talking to others and getting um, their their sense of what the evidence looks like to them, and that's an important role um, that the social the social dimension of striving plays. Okay, so. Um, to think about this question of interpretation, it might be helpful here um, to, to think about a specific case. So, um, this is a book by Jay McLeod called A No Making It. Um, some of you might have read it. It's a very popular sociology textbook. What's interesting is that Jay McLeod wrote this um, when he was an, uh, an undergraduate at Harvard. This is his undergraduate thesis and then became a kind of bestseller, and he's There's many editions of it. Um, But what Jacob McCloud did is he was volunteering um, at a housing project, and um, he started uh, doing an ethnography of that housing project that had been recently racially integrated. So most of the people in the housing project were low income. Um, There were people from different racial backgrounds and what uh, Jay McLeod notices is that there's these two groups um, of young men um, that live in the housing project one of the groups he calls the hallway hangers and they're uh, largely white uh, young men that are kind of as the name suggests, hanging out a lot, hanging out in the hallway. Um, And they're the kind of kids that are like not going to school. They're involved in drugs. They're a petty crime, um, and so on. And then there's this other group that he calls And Sorry, I'm going to actually grab my hand out here, because I do not want to mess it up. The brothers. Um, And this other group is mostly black. Low-income kids, they don't drink or do drugs. They go to school. They play sports. And they have these higher aspirations. And what strikes McLeod is that these two groups uh, of young men are living under very similar conditions. They're all from low-income families. They come from a very similar background. They're different uh, racially, and and in Q&A, if you want to ask me more about that, I I can say more about that. But what strikes McLeod is that they can be in such similar socioeconomic conditions, and then they come to very different interpretations of their situation. So he says, the hallway hangers see a ladder with no rungs on it, or at least none they can reach. They believe that the educational system cannot deliver on its progress of upward social mobility for those who perform well in school. And he contrasts this view of the aspirations of the hallway hangers from that of the brothers, who are achievement-oriented, prize accomplishments in school and obedience to the law, and measure success as does the rest of society. The ethos of their group encourages high aspirations and reinforces behavior that contributes to the realization of their goals. And if you read this ethnography, what's really interesting is that the hallway hangers have this view of their future, of what's possible for them, and they reinforce it with each other. They will talk to each other and kind of reinforce their view um, of what's possible, of what the future holds. And the same thing with the brothers, right? So there's these two social groups. And again, I think that what this shows is that there is this important social dimension that peers and others can play in helping us form a picture of what's possible, what kind of striving is possible for us. Um, And it can be that we might be in very similar circumstances, be looking at very similar evidence and just Reach these very different views uh, of what kind of striving is possible. Um, Okay, so um, uh, okay, so one of the uh, points, and I think here um, we're we're almost at a close that we want to make, is that. There's a lot of talk in our society um, about cultivating grit. So you hear about this in the context of schools, um, in the context of just you you go to the business aisle of any bookstore, and, and grit is very my colleague Duckworth um, is quite famous for for talking about grit and the importance of grit. Um, and we agree that grit is important that it is very useful, but we think that it's that it's equally important to notice its limitations when it makes sense, and also um, to get away from this idea that to cultivate grit is to cultivate a disposition to persevere no matter what that we need a new per- picture of strength of will for striving agents. The striving agent on our picture, is one that is paying attention to the evidence of how conducive to success her context is, whether she has what it takes, and what success looks like. She's talking to others to find out how they see her situation. So this is the role we have saying mentors, teachers, family can play. She's considering the problems and challenges she faces from different perspectives. She's open to the possibility that failure can be costly but doesn't give up too soon. And the strength of the striving agent comes not from persevering come what may, but from being attuned to the delicate balance she needs to strike between premature despair and costly failure. Now, here I want to bring up a cautionary tale about focusing on grit. Um, (coughs) Sorry. So Jay McLeod goes back to this housing project years later to see how these two groups of young men are doing. And what McLeod thinks before he he goes back is that there are going to be stark differences between the brothers, the positive, um, the positive kids with like high aspirations, who are not doing drugs, are not drinking, are going to school, and the hallway hangers, right, who seem to be constantly on the verge of dropping out and have these very negative views about their aspirations. What he finds is that the difference between them is not as large as you might think. It's true that the brothers are doing slightly better than the hallway hangers on some measures, um, but they haven't transcended their, their socioeconomic class, right? And I think what that shows is that there are contextual structural factors that have to do with race, socioeconomic class that cannot simply be overcome with striving, right? Even though that is a picture that we often have. So, too often we expect grit of agents who are in situations where optimism would fly in the face of evidence. So if we're going to go back to this question of how do we cultivate grit, we want to cultivate um, the strength of will involved in grit by making optimism a rational option, by making failure less costly, and by providing models of the path to success, um, but not just by suggesting that people kind of persevere, come what may, or embrace an optimistic mindset. Um, A mindset is rarely the kind of thing that will help you overcome the overwhelming evidence that you might have if you're in a situation like um, the brothers or the hallway hangers, that the deck is stacked against you. So that's all I'll say, thank you. looking forward to your questions.
0: You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute